0: Welcome to the Urology Coding and Reimbursement Podcast, where we help urologists and staff achieve peak economic and practice efficiency so there is time and energy to focus on patient care and a happy life. I'm your host, Scott Painter, with my co-hosts, Mark Painter and Dr. Ray Painter. Welcome to Episode 16 of the Urology Coding and Reimbursement Podcast. I'm your host, Scott Painter, with my co-hosts, Mark Painter and Dr. Ray Painter. And today, we're going to do some more frequently asked questions So we're going to go to the urology coding and reimbursement group and answer some questions uh, from from that group and have some discussion on that. So our first question is uh, from Lisa, and Lisa asks, can you bill a consultation, 99245, when one of our providers is sending his patient to another provider in the same group to discuss doing a RALP, R-A-L-P? The insurance plan is United UnitedHealthcare. Um, I don't think you can since they're under the same tax ID number. The provider that did that consult says that you can for a non-CMS plan. Please advise. Thanks. And then uh, we did have some, some discussion on this. And Amy said that uh, she commented that effective June 1st, 2019, UHC aligned with CMS and will not reimburse consultation codes. I think they're are maybe two insurances that will pay for 99245. All other insurances will deny this anyway. You'll end up having to bill an established patient visit. Blue Cross Blue Shield, Cigna, Aetna, United Healthcare and Medicare will not reimburse consults. So that was Amy's comment. All right.
1: Yeah, so, I mean, uh, Ray, Scott, I think this is another example of, of the layers that we deal with in healthcare reimbursement, from a CPT perspective, it is uh, appropriate for a partner to request a consultation of his or her partner, um, as long as the the three criteria are met. There has to be a request for opinion. Um, it uh, the the service is provided as a as a as a service to the patient, and then the opinion is communicated back to the requesting source. So you know those are the three things that need to, to happen and that can happen within a practice um, from CPT from the CPT perspective and and overarching that is it can't be a transfer of care, <laughs> meaning, Uh, You can't have your one doc saying, yeah, I'm moving this patient over for a a route, um, a a robotic uh, assisted laparoscopic prostatectomy, but um, that it would be for an opinion on whether or not this patient was good for uh, for that particular procedure. And then, of course, on top of that, um, you layer in what the payers pay and what the payer rules are. And the payers, Medicare being the first, basically said, we are not gonna pay consultation codes. And uh, slowly but surely over time, um, I would say that, that many of the, the, the large payers, most of the major p- players, Anthem, Cigna, Aetna, and United have followed Medicare. And no longer, uh, and have officially stated they will no longer pay for consultation codes, regardless of what CPT says. Um, now, uh, within the marketplace, you may have certain Blue Cross and Blue Shields that are not owned by Anthem that may pay for consultation codes. Um, you have potentially smaller uh, payers. Local payers that may pay for consultation codes, Um, and then um, you know you do have the uh, some of the ERISA plans or the self-administered plans that may pay for consultation codes, um, which actually may flow through um, Anthem or UHC or Cigna or Aetna um, right now, but those may change as well because they're now those are TPAs or third-party administrators. Is uh, it administrators?
0: Is it worth billing a consultation code if they pay for it? I mean, uh, you know, obviously we're talking about accurate coding and, you know, with the coverage spotty, you know, or the payment spotty, is it worth even submitting a consultation code?
1: Well, I mean, ultimately, it is, You that, this is where you need to know your payers and know your payer rules as best you can. So is it worth submitting a consultation code to Medicare? No. Um or United, or Aetna, or Cigna, or Anthem. Those are not payable codes in their commercial contracts or under Medicare, Medicare Advantage plans. So that's not worth it. Um, if you've got somebody that you question, you know that you don't know for sure, um, or a payer that has paid it in the past, then yes. Until you receive a denial, go ahead. Um, so that's that's kind of the the approach we would recommend.
2: So, Mark, specifically, uh, if the payer is paying a consult, you would charge a consult in the scenario that Lisa presented? Correct.
1: That is correct. I'm glad you asked me that very simple question <laughs> to, uh, to bring me back onto Target. <laughs> <laughs> All
0: right. All right. So I think we got that one answered. Uh, right. Anything else to add on that? Nope. Okay. All right. uh, We got a question from Jared. Uh, Jared uh, asked, in the urology clinic setting, when a patient comes in with urinary retention and we place a fully catheter to to drain the bladder, we code 51702, which I believe includes the actual cost of the catheter. Is that correct? Can we also bill for the leg bag or bedside drainage bag? And, uh, in particular, he lists uh, the HICPIC code A4357, which is the bedside drain- drainage bag.
1: So, uh, yeah, um, Jared. It, it, Jared's question is a good one, and we do get it rather frequently, but yes, the 51702 does include the supply of the catheter. Um, the leg bag is also bundled um, for the typical case. Uh, so. Um, in, in that case where the patient is in urinary retention, they have a, um, a condition that is temporary, um, that is a, uh, a service that would say that both of those supplies are incident to the payment of 51702 and not separately billable. Um, the A codes like the bedside drainage bag uh, and catheters Um, are there uh, and can be paid, but only under certain circumstances. So, um, and those uh, fall under DME POS, or we call them DemiPos. Um, You have to have a supplier number or the ability to bill the DME carrier for Medicare um, to receive payment for those services. And again, most payers tend to follow Medicare in this um, piece, but you know that might be something that you could tr- try and bill a private sector payer if you had um, no restrictions on your contract. And that by that I'm by that I mean the A code to the private sector payer, but not for Medicare Advantage and not for Medicare. The Demi pos requirements to move catheters in leg bags into a potentially payable environment require, and this is part of the DMEPOS, is that you are essentially, re- the supplies are taking the place of a specific bodily function. So if a patient is considered to be um, incontinent um, or they have a condition um, that requires them to have a catheter uh, all the time uh, for and and for this it's it's at and for for incontinence it's at least three months, but that you are replacing the function of the bladder or the sphincter um, for a quote unquote permanent condition, um, then um, that opens the door to coverage under durable medical equipment um, or the DME payer. Again, you have to have a DME supplier number. And then the second thing is um, uh, those codes or those services are for uh, or those, excuse me, those codes are for those supplies that are actually sent home with the patient. You would still not be able to charge for the catheter that you inserted in the office. But if you sent the pa- patient home with some additional catheters, you could charge for those catheters under the DME side.
0: Who do you recommend gets a DME certification? What offices? Is it worth it? And how much work is it?
1: So there is some work going through the process, and of course you need to be um, stocked with supplies, so you have to have space. Um, Typically, uh, DME, and you do have to bill somebody uh, within the Medicare system that is different then you know, the bills go out to a different group. Um, I would say that um, larger practices or folks that have a, a really high concentration or a high concentration of permanently incontinent folks um, may uh, jump into the DME supply game. But what I'm seeing more and more now um, are uh, basically subcontractor deals where uh, you can find a, a, uh, an organization, if you have enough size and volume within your practice, um, that will administer your DME for you. And then you receive um, some remuneration for them um, working out of your office. So there is a way to get some money out of it without taking the risk. Um, this seems to be a little bit more attractive. You Leave the DME supplies to somebody else. But if you know, there are practices that do have um, DME uh, that they they do supply and bill for. So, a bigger practice, smaller practices, um, I'd look at outsourcing that to, to one of these other companies.
2: Mark, now you mentioned incontinence, but that also would apply to anybody that uh, has a, a neurogenic bladder or obstruction of any kind. As long as it's a chronic uh, uh, problem is that correct yeah permanent
1: is technically what it Mm -hmm. be so i mean chronic is one way to look at it and um, but the classification technically is a permanent condition and again permanent doesn't even have to be forever if you were to go in and surgically correct it Um, but if they were permanently neurogenic or per and then somewhere down the road you went in and constructed a a new bladder or we're able to re <laughs> renerve the bladder. Then you, that you know that would that could change. But until such time that they are permanent in that condition,
2: right? And you mentioned that that would anticipate to be over three months.
1: Correct.
0: All right. And so one one clarification. So if I'm if if our office if I had an office and I was looking to bring this in. To you know, make this a part of my services. I would number one look at my patient mix to see how many patients I'm bringing in with that fit the DME category. Number two, I got to do some sort of uh, analysis to determine if it's it's worth me, you know, worth the practice taking it on versus outsourcing. So there's like three three different decision trees there.
1: Correct. Yep. Volume. well, uh, the other thing you 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 put in there, I think implied, but that didn't state maybe as clearly. Right in here was, do I have the personnel and expertise,
0: mm. and uh, space, obviously too, right?
1: Correct. And then to bring it in house, or should I? Well, should I outsource it? Right. All right.
0: Okay. Anything else to add to that question? Nope.
1: nope. Okay.
0: All right, uh, the next question we have is from Tracy, and Tracy says uh, the OIG will add to their work plan on August 3rd, 2020, which as of this recording is uh, is going to be next week, two concurrent reviews of Medicare Parts B and C data to determine the use of telehealth services during the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, report number oei dash. 02-20-00520. Do you know if on August 3rd when this is added to the work plan if there will be more details of what will be audited? Thanks.
1: Ah, well, Tracy always asks us good questions for one thing um, and, uh, and, and detailed questions too. Uh, so, you know, typically the OIG work plan uh, does include higher level targets. Um, and, uh, it you know, it, it is not always forthcoming with all the details of specifically what they are looking for. Um, so, um, I would say judging from what we've seen in the past, and obviously we've got a couple of days um, before it comes out and we can see the full work product and and probably should jump on and comment at that point in time. But, Right now I would say that they they will likely give us the parameters of what they're looking for in in a general sense, meaning we're going to look at, uh, you know, uh, telehealth visits um, uh, provided um, in the COVID emergency um, under the following circumstances. But they're not going to say, we're particularly looking for whether or not the, the practice documented according to 2021 guidelines and use time-based coding. They usually don't dig that deep when they, they give us the release. It's the general parameters of their targets.
2: Mm-hmm. Okay. So, so Mark, you're not looking for, if if you're in a private office doing telemedicine, you would think just uh, sticking with the documentation that they're required to do now will be adequate because that, that shouldn't bring up anything in part C that's going to interfere with that, correct?
1: I, yes, um, I mean, the the reality is, I mean, you, you should always be coding um, and documenting appropriately, which is what we always try and do. Um, and, I, and Tracy may be asking the question, saying, you know, ultimately, how much do you think I'm going to get harassed um, for my documentation? Because I know, you know, she, like a lot, of other, a lot of other folks, have done a lot of work to try and get everything compliant. You know, Tracy's asked multiple questions for her group on, you know, where, where patients need to be, which codes need to be used, how do they document telehealth, with video versus the ctbs so um i, I think a lot of people are and, and that question may have two levels one is you know should i be worried because i didn't document things well and my answer to that would be yeah you should always be worried if you haven't documented things well um but i think the other other piece of that is how much of a of a load do you think this is gonna be um and and ultimately the you know, the OIG kind of gives you that list of these are the general things we're looking for um, and whether or not it's going to be s- like specifically targeted at urology is going to be hard to discern. Um, and that, and of course, the other thing you've got to remember is the OIG is in charge of looking at all physicians across the country and all of them were billing telehealth. So um, if you've done things within the parameters of providing Medically necessary care and documenting things appropriately, um, you are going to be less of a target because, guaranteed, there were some people out there, unfortunately, that took advantage of this situation and started churning and burning codes that they probably should not have. So, those are going to be the big targets.
0: All right. All right. Anything else to add to that? Okay. No. Let's move on. Uh, Okay. So, the next question we have is from Esther. Um, Esther says, uh, we have a question regarding PCNL and access placement. If a patient has a nephrostomy tube placed prior to the PCNL, do we append modifier 52 to the 50080 or the 50081? we have been told since the access was already in place, we would need to append the modifier 52. Also, if the doctor performed the access, can we bill 50432 or 50433 and the 50080 together or uh, together and would 50080 or 81 still need a modifier 52? So and then we did have a couple comments on that uh, Jared said, no, I wouldn't use modifier fifty two getting access isn't required to bill five zero zero eight zero or five zero zero eight one that's Jared's opinion and then Amy commented that uh, one of uh, my doctors does these a lot he is the only one who places the perk tube himself all the other physicians have IR do that mostly for him um for him I bill a 50081 or 50080 and the 50432 which is the placement of the perk tube and the 52005 for the cystocath placement if the patient already had uh, has an existing perk tube and the physician replaces it that would be the 50435 instead of the 50432 so, so, that's kind of the discussion that went on in the, the group. Uh, you want to clarify or further uh, discuss?
1: So, a couple of different things I would add is that, um, you know, without a doubt, um, I would not use uh, a 52 modifier on the 50080 or 81. Um, if they're going through um, an established access point by somebody else, so I agree with with Jared um, that that is not something um, you should build. Um, now, the placement of the nephrostomy catheter, the five zero four three two, you know, you got a few different issues. They that, that and and this is an area of confusion across the board. Um, you know they added the new codes, the 50436 and the 50437, uh, um, uh, and replaced it with the old code that we used to use, which was the 50395. Um, so, um, and that's really driven a, a number of different problems. And and there's also questions on whether or not the retrograde um, can be charged as well if the retrograde is done and. Um, And and some of that uh, anti-grade, scoping, all of those things have been issues um, that are are being looked at, I think, across the board because there is so much confusion around this. Um, But if you definitely look at bundling edits and you look at everything um, relative to where things sit right now and what we have been teaching... Um, that 50432 code um, is something that typically um, can be reported um, in addition to the 50 uh, or to the 50080 or 81. Um, now, the one thing you've got in place, unfortunately, on this um, is that the 50432 um, was really focused. On the placement of uh, uh, including the diagnostic ultrasound, um, so you, you, your imaging um, is not something that you can, um, uh, as far as that's concerned, bill separately for um, in the process. So um, that five zero four three two can be reported as a as in a, in condition. Uh, in conjunction with the 50080 or the 50081. Um, The 50433 um, is one um, that, again, is not bundled um, into uh, the 50080 or the 50081. Um, And I'm just double checking that really quickly. and um, again, it's the placement of, uh, of a catheter um, with new access um, in the process, and, and it cannot um, all be billed with the new codes of the, the 36 or the, the 37. Um, so if you are establishing your access, um, you should be able to charge in an addition. And if you're going through established access, you should not use the 52 modifier. Um, now, the 52005, the retrograde um, pilogram that's done, um, the imaging and guidance is included um, in your 50432 and 33, um, but the actual injection, the, fi- the 52005 is not um, technically, uh, but there are some payers that are bundling those things. Um, I do um, understand um, that is, is confusing, and, and as does the AUA, um, so um, I think we're going to see some more clarification on this because it is such a confusing topic um, and, and, and all developed or surrounding those, the new codes that came in and the removal of the 50395, so um, PCNL, is, is, it continues to be a problem. It continues to be an issue even if you bill it correctly as far as how it's adjudicated, Um, but don't use the 52. And if you do place the access, you can look at the 504.32 or 504.33. And um, right now, I I think you're justified in reporting the retrograde if you're doing it for a medically necessary reason. However, um, there are some payers that are, are having difficulties with that. So again, you've got the CPT, and the payer rules.
0: All right. That's
1: it for today. Uh, we'll cover
0: the proposed rules as soon as they come out. We still have not seen those yet, so we'll get those. Uh, uh, I think Mark's going to do a, a synopsis of how that's going to affect uh, the urologist and the urology practice. As, as soon as, uh, as he can digest it and get it uh, get it out, we'll get it out to you in a, in a podcast. So uh, that's going to be the next one, we hope and uh, until next time thank you for listening Happy good thank you for listening to the urology coding and reimbursement podcast where we help urologists and staff achieve peak economic and practice efficiency so there's time and energy to focus on patient care and a happy life special thanks to Carl Painter For the music today, you can find his music under his record label, The Juicery, with Extra Pulp and Special Guests.